the book of Colossians. We'll be continuing from where we left off last time, Colossians chapter 1, looking tonight in particular at verses 9 through 14. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Now I say last time, but last time has been a little bit ago. And so I'm going to give us a a quick recap just to make sure we're still all on the same page about what is going on here in the church and the community at Colossae. Now if you recall, it it is complimentary as we find Paul being to the church here because he almost uncharacteristically is being so. I mean, we're, we're used to letters like 1st and 2nd Corinthians where Paul has some negative things to say and some rebukes. Uh, We don't find that so to speak here, but we do find a church in the midst of a little bit of outward facing in conflict, a little bit of trial and tribulation. We establish that Paul wrote this letter to the Christian church here in large part as a response to some widespread false teaching that was going on in the area. We're not told it's Gnostics, but basically every scholar, every theologian, every commentator has agreed for about as long as this letter's been in circulation that it it seems from the way that Paul writes, the way the things that he addresses are addressed, uh, that it's some form at least of Gnosticism that had crept in and the people were being tempted with. What essentially we're to understand is that people had come to the Colossians essentially saying to them, what you heard from Paul is great, uh, what you've been hearing from uh, Pastor Epaphras is, is fine and, and well, but what we have to offer is something just a little bit better. We, we have some icing on the cake, so to speak. There's, there's something that you are missing out on in your Christian experience. Uh, Paul and Epaphras' teachings, uh, they, they seem to be saying, you know, they got you started in the right direction, but let's finish that journey for you. You're still missing a good bit. There's some, like with so many cults, some secret knowledge uh, that you're missing out on. What teaching we have to offer would bring you a fuller, truer knowledge. But what we have to offer is a more real experiential power. And so Paul, from the very start of this letter, in classic Paul fashion, begins to undermine and unravel that teaching. He begins to address it. He reminded the Colossians there in the introduction in the first couple of verses uh, that we did a a few sermons back. He reminded them from the very onset of their relationships which define them. He reminded them that they were saints, that they were people in good standing with the Lord. And he continued to strengthen their assurance in where we were last time uh, by pointing to their fruits that were evident in their life told them that, brothers and sisters, I've heard of, even though I've never met you, I am aware of your strong faith, your hope, and your love. Look at at the fruitfulness of your Christian lives. So to say, you're not missing out on anything. And now today, Paul will continue to combat this false teaching yet again. And this time, I think in an interesting way. Paul is going to combat this false teaching by giving us some insight into his very own prayer life. And so if you haven't already, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. Before we hear from God's word, would you join me one more time as we go to him in prayer? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your holy, precious, unchanging word. It is sufficient. It is powerful. It is good. 
And we are grateful for it, Lord, that you have given us from Genesis to Revelation your will revealed for us. Father, we thank you that there isn't some teaching, some mysterious knowledge out there in the world that we are missing out on. We thank you that through the word of God which is written down for us in this book, that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you for the scriptures which are our rule of faith and life, our our standard, our, our groundwork, the place from which we grow in knowledge, the place from which we find true power, the place in which we get to encounter the true and living God. Father, we pray now that as we hear your word preached, that we would receive it just as that, as your word which is preached. Father, help it to be sweeter than honey on our lips. Help us to love it. Help us to be encouraged by it and challenged in the areas where we need to be challenged. Father, help us to see Christ and make much of him. And Father, help us in the areas where we see our sinfulness reflected back to be repentant of it. Father, we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. This is, brothers and sisters, I would remind you God's holy, perfect word. Hear it now. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. May God bless the reading and the hearing of it. Amen. Priorities are something that I think are quite important to have in life. Uh, every time that I can think of in my life that I have started a project or, or a task or, or anything from small to big, from meaningless to meaningful, that I haven't started by writing down my priorities on that particular task, I, I flounder. It's important to have our priorities straight. And different people figure out what their priorities are in different ways. You know, uh, Many people find it helpful, as I do, to write them out. I'm a visual person. I've got to see them in front of me. If I just have in my head, they remain something lofty and out of reach. But I think that one way we may be able to figure out, any one of us, regardless of what your uh, particular learning method is, I think one fail-safe way of discovering what our true priorities are in life would be to do a self-analysis on what our prayers consist of. On what our prayers consist of. What is it that you spend the bulk of your prayer life asking for? What is it that when you get down on your knees, when you get in your closet, when you have your time alone with the Lord, what, what are the things that your prayers consist of? What are the things that you ask for and request? What is it that, that comes to mind? 
I think that will help us in giving us a list of our priorities. I know that if I'm being honest with you, brothers and sisters, uh, even as I was writing this out and thinking this out and reflecting over this, began to do a self-analysis on myself, uh, more often than I would like, the requests in my heart and mind, in my prayer life, that they aren't reflective of what my priorities should be from a biblical perspective. Uh, I had a, uh, an old pastor um, about a decade ago in a church uh, Carly and I were attending right after uh, we got married uh, that would always say, prayers for grandma's ankle are fine and great, but is that really where the bulk of our prayers are supposed to be? And right, we know the answer, no. Right? We, we should have some priorities that are, that are bigger than grandma's ankle, not that we don't love grandma. Right? We take an analysis of our priorities from our prayer life. What we have here for the Apostle Paul is his prayer life recorded for us. And we get to see in it his priorities, not just for the church at Colossae, but I think for the church in all ages. I think for the church here at New Covenant, for God's people. In this instance, it's a church being attacked with false teaching, going through some trials and some tribulations, some temptation, so to speak. But I do believe wholeheartedly that the prayer that we read here, that we find here, is applicable across the board for the church in all seasons and all places. From it, I think we can have modeled for us what our priorities in prayer should be. From it, we can learn what our priorities in prayer and in life and in the church should be. The prayers can help not just the church there in Colossae thousands of years ago. I think they can be helpful for each one of us gathered here tonight. For those of you struggling with doubt, trials, suffering, tribulations of your own, I think especially in those times, the temptation is for our prayer life to become immensely inward focused. And that's not what we find Paul doing here. And so what was Paul's prayer? What was Paul's prayer? Here we see his prayer to the church, that God's people, that their prayer would be filled with three things. We find that his prayer is filled with three things. Requests for knowledge, requests for knowledge, power, and thanksgiving. He prays for Christians there, as we should pray for ourselves, for knowledge, power, and thanksgiving. And so look with me, if you would, at verses 9 through 10, where we see Paul praying that they would be filled with a true knowledge. With a true knowledge. Verses 9 through 10, Paul writes, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you see what Paul did? did? Did you catch it at all? Paul is using some of these buzzwords uh, that the Gnostics, that these false teachers have been using. These likely Gnostic false teachers had been trying to sway the folks. Remember at Colossae, as we've covered every week that we've been going through Colossians, that they're missing out on something. This was uh, Gnosticism 101. That there was some better type of knowledge, this secret knowledge that they were missing out on. Of course, as it is with any cult, conveniently it's a knowledge that only they could give, right? It's a knowledge that only they could share, that only they could make them aware of. And so what Paul does here is he says, listen up, brothers and sisters. 
What I'm praying for you is that you would be filled with the knowledge and wisdom in Christ Jesus, a knowledge and wisdom that you already have complete and full, unhindered access to. It's that which you already have full access to, that which you have already been taught of by me and by Epaphras. A practical wisdom, not some mysterious, mystic, cultic wisdom and knowledge that you get through some weird set of rituals, but a very practical, down-to-earth wisdom, which comes only through Christ and that which is in accordance with the Word of God, not some mysterious, secret nonsense. And so what is true knowledge? What does this true knowledge that Paul writes of, what does it consist of? Paul writes that to be filled with knowledge and spiritual wisdom in a biblical sense is to, quote, and notice how practical this is, notice how hands-on this knowledge is, it is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It is to walk in a manner fully pleasing to Him. It is to walk bearing fruit in every good work. Now Paul is not saying that they need to walk in a certain way or gain or rise to a certain level of knowledge or wisdom in order to become worthy of the Lord. It's important that we understand that distinction. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is not saying, uh, guys, uh, there is some wisdom that you're missing out on. Once you get that wisdom, once you grow in that knowledge, then you will be worthy of Christ Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying at all. There is no knowledge that once learned or deed that once done makes you worthy of the Lord and His grace. Or else it wouldn't be grace. No, Paul is saying that as those who have already received Christ and His grace that it should show itself forth in having this true knowledge. And so what is it? What is, what is true knowledge? What is true biblical wisdom and spiritual knowledge? It's not knowing uh, the difference in infra and supralapsarianism, praise be to God. Uh, it's not being able to fluently read in your Bible study time the scriptures in the original Greek and Hebrew, praise be to the Lord. No, true knowledge, once again, I appreciate this here. As someone who has struggled, and as we're going to talk about in a minute, both sides of the spectrum, I've felt myself bounce back and forth throughout the years. I appreciate how practical and down-to-earth this knowledge that Paul writes of is here. It's something, as we're going to cover in a minute, it doesn't matter if you come from a blue-collar background or a white-collar background. There's not an IQ level that you must have in order to wrap your mind around this. It's very practical. True knowledge, the kind that Paul is praying for the church here, has two components. It desires first to please God, and secondly, it is a fruitful or working knowledge. It desires to please God, and it is a fruitful or working knowledge. And so first, we see that true knowledge desires to please God. True knowledge, the kind that comes from God's Holy Spirit, this spiritual wisdom that Paul writes of, before anything else, desires as its aim, as its goal, as its, as good Presbyterians, we would say, its chief end to please God. Those who have true knowledge of God, we can put it this simply, desire to please God. Their actions and works are motivated by a sincere yearning to please their Lord and Savior. They understand and know and live out and feel that the chief end of man, that the main reason they exist on this earth is what, brothers and sisters? 
to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Paul puts it this way elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. You've got to love short verses, sweet and to the point verses, that we make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please Him. You know, I am the firstborn son uh, in my family. I only have one sibling, a little brother that's about three and a half years uh, younger than me. We were raised exactly the same, as far as I can tell, thinking back. And yet we could not be two more polar opposite human beings. Uh, you know, and there's a whole psychological debate about the order of, of, of children being born. I used to think it was a load of hogwash. And then I've had two kids of my own. And uh, already, they're completely different. As the oldest son, uh, I've been told by my parents my whole life that I fit the stereotype of an older son to the T when it came to the relationships in the household. Uh, For me growing up, genuinely, honestly, uh, I didn't have to get that many spankings. Uh, Whereas it felt like the belt was always being pulled out for my little brother. Uh, And it's not, I promise, that I was their favorite. It's definitely Nick that's their favorite. Uh, They can't even lie about it. But but for me growing up, to know that my actions, that something that I did had disappointed my parents, that something that I had done had upset them, it it upset me. To know that I had let them down or disappointed them, whether it was a a grade on a test or or a behavior or a word or or an action, that was all I needed to try to behave differently. To correct that course. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, as much as I love my little brother, uh, I, I can be honest with you, he's not here. Uh, that was not the case for Nick. Uh, sometimes it took a spanking and then another spanking and then another spanking and then he just did it more smart where they didn't find out. I truly wanted to please them because I loved them. The, the thought of disappointing them, of them being upset with me, broke me to my core. Brothers and sisters, Our prayer for ourselves tonight should be that our hearts should be like a firstborn child. That we may earnestly desire out of love, out of love to please our Heavenly Father. True knowledge desires to please God, but it's also a fruitful working knowledge. It bears fruit in every good work, Paul says. True knowledge, or to put this another way, a simpler way maybe, real knowledge has practical outworkings. It it never just ends with knowledge. And I think Paul here conveniently, cleverly, uh, addresses a couple of separate issues that are on two opposite ends of the spectrum and misunderstandings that we sadly find prevalent in, in so many of today's churches. On the one hand... This is going to be the easier one for us because this is the one that we can point out there and say, look at those people. Uh, On the one hand, we find today a large group of professing Christians who don't think they need to grow in knowledge at all. That when it comes to things like knowledge or doctrine or teachings, they think that that's just incredibly unnecessary. And instead, just desire experience. That's the big buzzword You don't need knowledge, you don't need wisdom, you don't need books. Shoot, half the time they would say, you don't even need a pastor or a church. All that matters is are you growing in your experiences with the Lord. This group seeks experiences in their Christian walk. And sadly, it seems, for this group, the stranger and weirder the experience, the better. 
Some of these folks even act as though if it's stranger and if it's weirder and if it's more out there, that conveys more faithfulness on their part. That means that God has a special love for them, that they have a special place with the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is just not remotely biblical. Paul says here that true knowledge desires to please God. That means we need a true knowledge. Knowledge is important. It's practical. It works. It's fruitful. Now, on the other hand, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think this one might hit a a little bit closer to home for some of us. Uh, I know for myself it does. There are others who profess Christ and want to know and learn doctrines and teachings, who love books, who love sermons, who love podcasts, who can't seem to get enough of the feast of knowledge that's at their fingertips but in whom we find no practical outworkings and growth in their life. Just as experience is the measure by which the other group thinks it has true knowledge and wisdom, so theological facts, books, podcasts, and degrees are the measure by which this group thinks it has true knowledge and wisdom. And it's equally unbiblical. It's not remotely biblical. Brothers and sisters, true knowledge and wisdom are not just theoretical and lofty up in some ivory tower, not getting its hands dirty. True knowledge is practical. It is fruitful. It works. It doesn't just think or know. True knowledge does. True knowledge isn't just gained in order to impress people at work or school or at the coffee shop or online on the internet. True knowledge is gained so that we can become more like Christ in our daily lives, killing sin, bearing fruit and good works to His glory. So we don't pray, we don't pray to grow in knowledge for knowledge's own sake. But we pray to grow in knowledge so that through that knowledge, we would grow in our love of God and our neighbor. And so we see that our first prayer priority is to be for knowledge, true knowledge, a a knowledge which desires to please God and a knowledge which desires to do, which is fruitful. And secondly, we see that one of our prayer priorities should be power, a real power. Paul writes in verse 11 that he's praying for us that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Paul again here is turning these heretics' teachings and words on their own heads. They came uh, promising and professing manifestations of God's power like these people hadn't experienced before. Just like a cult comes always promising some deeper experience, some deeper manifestation of God's power, something that will awe and shock and wonder. So Paul says, no. Brothers and sisters, here is real power. You already have access to it. There's not anything that you are missing out on. And it's not that which is likely to awe and wonder the majority of people. It's not flashy or showy. It's not self-seeking or self-promoting. The real power which Paul speaks of here produces three things. And notice how opposite these things are than how the world thinks of power. The real power which Paul writes of and prays for us here consists of and produces three things. Endurance, patience, and joy. If I'm being honest, if you ask me to make a short list of words I associate with power, 
I don't know if off the top of my head any of those three would have made the top ten. Yet they're exactly what Paul lists here. First, Paul says he's praying for the church for a power which produces endurance. Endurance. The word that the ESV here translates endurance can also be translated as steadfastness or constancy. It's a steady persistence towards a goal, even or especially we might say in the face of hardship, trials and tribulation, difficulty and suffering. This is something that we think of, uh, I think readily comes to mind, something that a soldier must have. A soldier must have endurance to make it through training, to make it through lengthy deployments in hard places. We could also think of the endurance that a student must have. Some of our students are uh, having to show endurance in the writings of papers and the taking of tests. Especially, uh, we need a special endurance when it's difficult teachers to make it through these hardships. A student must have endurance to make it through midterms, finals, and papers. Many of us in this room have been new parents at some point in time. Let me tell you, if you haven't been, you need endurance to make it through those first couple of months. Uh, If you're like myself, I've been used to my whole life, eight hours of sleep every night without fail. Uh, I was that guy in college that when my friends uh, came and knocked on my dorm room at 10 o'clock at night and said, do you want to go to Waffle House? I said, have you lost your mind? I've been asleep for 30 minutes already. And so when when Liam came and then again with Sammy came, as, as good as they've been with sleeping, it still was about a solid month for Liam and a few for Sammy of Every hour, if not more, of waking up, crying, having to go and and, and take care of a baby to get barely back to sleep and wake back up again. It takes endurance. Brothers and sisters, a Christian must have endurance to make it through this world. As we live in the midst of a culture which is increasingly departing from true knowledge, we must increasingly possess this real power of endurance which Paul writes of. The one that produces endurance steadfastness, and constancy. We should pray for it. We should pray for it that we may do as the author of Hebrews instructs and lay aside every weight, lay aside every sin which clings so closely, and he prays that we, and I think we should pray, that we may run with endurance. The same word that Paul uses here, that the author of Hebrews uses there, that we may run with endurance this race which is set before us. How do we do that? He continues, we do it by looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes, so to speak, on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Notice, not just here, but I want us to notice in each one of these three aspects of real power, how Christ is the perfect picture of what true power looks like. Secondly, Paul says he's praying for the church for a power which produces patience. For a power which produces patience. And we want to quickly say, Paul, be careful about praying for that one. Uh, personally, every, every time that I make the mistake, I, I've stopped praying for it in my, in my morning quiet time. I save it for the afternoon when I'm not having to drive anymore. Because uh, I've found that every time I pray for patience first, time, first thing in the morning, I, I get stuck behind someone going 15 below the speed limit. But, but Paul prays for it here. And he encourages us, I think, to pray for it as well. This word patience can also be translated, and I I prefer the KJV here. The KJV translates this as long-suffering. It's a good word picture, that word. Long-suffering. 
This is, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, a fruit of the Spirit. This is to be self-restrained. It's to have a quiet soul in the face of hardship, trials, and tribulations. It's literally to be able to suffer long. Long suffering doesn't surrender to circumstance and it doesn't succumb to trials. And so may we pray that we would have the Spirit of Christ when in the midst of His trials and tribulations, when in the midst of the suffering that He experienced being horrifically crucified, nailed to a cross, that He prayed even for those who abused Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You won't find a better picture of long suffering. Third and finally, Paul says that he's praying for the church for a power which produces joy. For a power which produces joy. The Christian does not simply trudge through life with endurance and patience as some stoic, emotionless, just gritting our teeth, having to get through it. Well, if I can just make it through this day and then the next, just trying to make it to the end. That's not the picture that Paul or the Scriptures paint for us. No, the power which Paul prays for the church, the power which we should be praying for and striving for ourselves is a power which produces joy even in the midst of all of that and more. And this doesn't mean that we don't ever suffer. That's just unrealistic. This doesn't mean that we're happy, clappy, uh, K-love, positive and encouraging from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed. It doesn't mean you're happy and cheery with a smile on your face even when hardship and suffering come. That makes you a psychopath, not a good Christian. That's not normal and it's not healthy. Happy and joyful are not synonymous. Those are, those are not synonymous words. Happiness is a fleeting, superficial emotion which is likely to change constantly based on our circumstances which change constantly. But biblical joy... Biblical joy is rather, as R.C. Sproul defines it, profound peace, comfort, and stability, even in the midst of hardship. And so how does that work? How does that work? Why would you have joy, peace, comfort, stability in the midst of hardship and suffering? And again, I must encourage us to look to the example of Christ who is the author of Hebrews wrote that we just read a minute ago, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What got Christ through the suffering on the cross? He had his eyes on the prize, so to speak. He had his eyes fixed on the joy which was set before him. Christ knew that even the bad that happened in his life was ultimately for his good and God's glory. And so should we. This is why James can command us. James commands us to, quote, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James, what are you, a psychopath? You want me to be joyful even when I face trials of various kinds? And James would say, absolutely. It's not that it's not hard. It's not that we don't weep. It's not that we don't have broken spirits at times over it. It's not that it's not something that produces sadness, maybe, even in the midst of the moment. But as those who have our eyes fixed on the prize, who know that we have a sovereign, providential, powerful, all-knowing, all-controlling God who sits on His throne even now, 
who is over all of it, who has declared and decreed all of it, not just happenstance, not just random atoms happening and bumping in each other, but that even in the worst of times, that you have the confidence and the knowledge as a fact that your loving Father has done this, yes, even this, for your good, your benefit, and His glory. That has us being joyful even in the midst of it. This is why Paul, again, in Romans 12, can say to us, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And I think the three go together. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We can have joy in the midst of hardship and trials because we know that ultimate joy is found only in Christ. Not anything in this life that may be taken from us. As the psalmist puts it, it's in your presence, speaking to the Lord, it's in your presence that there is fullness of joy. It's at your right hand that I find pleasures forevermore. And so we should pray for true knowledge. A true knowledge which desires to please God and a true knowledge which is practically fruitful. We should pray, secondly, for a real power. A real power which produces not the things that the world thinks of as power, but which produces endurance, patience, and joy. And lastly, we should pray to be filled with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Paul writes in verses 12 through 14 that we should be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now this is my favorite point, but we're not going to spend much time on it uh, because we're going to take a whole sermon next time to give this the time that it's worth and due to, to dive into it. It's just... It's simply too rich of a text to delegate to it to a point at the end of a sermon. It deserves a sermon of its own. It's it's gospel 101, and so it's going to get a sermon of its own next time. But Paul says shortly here that he's praying that we should be moved to thanksgiving. And yes, it's good to be thankful for for all the worldly blessings that God has given us. It's appropriate. He's blessed you with a house, a a car, clothes, a, a family, loved ones. Be thankful for that, absolutely. But he's talking about a specific thanksgiving here. That we should be moved to thanksgiving for the salvation that God has brought you. God has qualified you. He has delivered you. And he has redeemed you. Are you thankful for that? Or do you find yourselves, like myself if I'm being honest, from time to time, if, if you've been in the church for a long time, if you were saved you know, decades ago, I think it's a real struggle from time to time as we get caught up in the monotony of life and as we grow in knowledge and, and other doctrines, that if we're being completely honest, when it comes to the gospel, sometimes we, we would never admit it, but we almost have a sense of boredness. Like we're beyond this. We, we know this. We're past that. Are you thankful? Are you appropriately thankful for the salvation which God has brought to a sinner like you? How often do you think upon it? How often do you reflect upon the fact that the Savior, the Creator, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God had mercy on a wretch like you. How often are you moved to thankfulness for it? I think if we're being honest, the answer is always not nearly enough. And so we should pray for true knowledge. 
which desires to please God and which is practically thankful, fruitful. We should pray for real power, power which produces endurance and patience and joy. And lastly, we should pray to be filled with thanksgiving, especially thanksgiving for the salvation which God has brought to sinners like us, that he has qualified you, he has delivered you, and he has redeemed you. Would you join me as we do that right now? Almighty, good, and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. You have given us this tool, this love letter, this message, this declaration, this revelation of your will, Father, that we don't have to, as the the saints and prophets of old, wait sometimes years, decades at a time for some prophet maybe miles away to, to be spoken to by you, that, Lord, now we have it right here, complete, full in front of us. Most of us have several copies of it, even on our phone. Father, we thank you for your word of God, which you have given us. Lord, we pray now that through the help and the aid of your spirit, that you would help us to do as we have heard from your word tonight. Help us in our prayer life. Lord, help us tomorrow morning. Help us tonight as we go before you in prayer in our homes and private and with our family. Help us to pray, Lord, that you would fill us with true knowledge, with real power, and with thanksgiving. Lord, especially help us to be filled with thanksgiving for all that you have done and blessed us with in Christ Jesus. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.